0: this happened through, first of all, pain, the pain of war, let's say, because we discovered that that um, if you're not uh, together, you're apart. Mm-hmm. And if you're apart, it can be a very painful experience. Whether it's possible or not, uh, time will show. But whether we should work towards that direction, I would say yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. That's, the, um, that's the answer. We, we, we can't do that. We cannot just... Uh, Wait and hope. Yes, it's a it's huge uh, challenge. Perhaps the biggest is actually politics, or if you like, governance.
1: Right.
0: This debate started in China, and I was uh, shocked of how open these debates uh, were. If you develop products that they cost the billions, and then the market doesn't take it, basically, and then you have to even to ban them. That can be really costly.
1: you here today.
0: Very glad to be here with you.
1: I really enjoyed reading your research and what I found interesting is that you have done a lot of comparative work. So culture versus culture, national versus international, governments versus the people in terms of the different values, interests, perceptions that each have when it comes to science and technology policies and practices. So then, what is good science and technology policy or process? Uh, Are there any particular characteristics that one should look for?
0: Yes. Okay, the next $1 million question. Um, uh, To to start with, uh, yes, since the beginning, since is also my PhD years, a long time ago, actually, I had this opportunity, which wasn't uh, that obvious at, at the time, because it was the beginning of these international comparisons on uh, science and technology um, uh, perceptions, public perceptions. And that was also the first time that, that we really had the chance to look at uh, how different publics, how different cultures, and, and see um, and, and assess uh, science and technology policy, science and technology uh, developments, particular developments at the time was in uh, biotechnology. And immediately we saw that there were um, a very uh, significant difference, actually, even within Europe. We're talking about the, the early 90s. Um, and we had even this, the most obvious, also political uh, difference, let's say, um, reflected in this uh, perception. So it was east versus west, for instance, or um, north versus south. Things that we still see, of course, uh, nowadays, but not as as uh, strongly, as significant differences as we once actually uh, saw. Um, and that started us actually going into um, uh, really trying to figure out what kind of values are behind this public uh, perceptions, the the difference that brought us to uh, basically the the political uh, uh, system that is also related to the values system that we see in the society and how the political system reacts to this value system. And therefore we um, end up with very different policies when it comes to um, the science and technology and innovation, by the way, development. And so into if one must make a very, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, crude uh, summary of what makes a a good uh, policy. Um, A good policy is uh, both a policy that's socially sustainable, it is um, a a policy that uh, uh, not only is aware of uh, societal uh, uh, conflict, societal uh, uh, issues, let's say, societal concerns about uh, a specific uh, technology, and, uh, and uh, deals with these uh, concerns, but uh, also one that is trying to minimize um, the conflict via uh, via open debate, uh, via an open science, as we call it uh, nowadays, uh, and, uh, perspective. Uh, but also one that has a specific leadership, and shows leadership actually in this uh, based on these values, because the values are there not only as as uh, vague let's say, uh, norms in society. They are there, written, actually, in, written in our constitutions, written in our treaties, um, written in our strategies. So there are very specific values that we have to follow. And it is good if we stick with these values, because they are the result of very long um, uh, discussions in society.
1: But the discussions involving a diverse range of people, so the public as well as people who work in policy? How do
0: those values get developed in the first place? Uh, there is the, the should and the, how how it the should develop and sometimes how they develop. What value is? It's already a, a contentious uh, discussion. We don't have a, a common understanding of um, uh, what creates. Uh, let's say, uh, the value, what are the historical movements that has created a specific uh, specific value in uh, society. We have tried to, to do that, but there is also a limit to, to how uh, one can go into this kind of uh, discussion. Uh, I'd say that the value is a common agreement of what is uh, right and what is wrong in society. And this common agreement is uh, changing with time. What is a, a good value today is not necessarily a good value tomorrow. The same thing that we have seen with uh, in our work in public perceptions of science and technology they change through time that's a good thing you know they should change <laughs> because the debate changes, the science change the development change the applications of the development change a lot we should always uh, be aware that that uh, the creation of a value is through a, a continuous feedback between um, the science policy and society every now and then we meet to, uh, of course, to establish, to to write them, if you like, in a kind of stone uh, uh, type of idea. So we, we create a treaty. In our case, we have the uh, treaties in the European Union that created the European Union, and they specifically refer to the values of the European uh, Union. And the same, of course, with the constitutions around uh, uh, the world. But one has to be, of course, an open to this change, and the only way to be open to the change is to have a continuous debate, a continuous dialogue. Uh, with society and that's what we try to do as well that is basically a big part of our job and try to uh to to, to be a part to oversee these uh, dialogues that happen in society and to um if you like not exactly predict because it's strong words but uh, try to uh, to foresee what kind of issues and concerns we might have with specific developments
1: obviously europe is a very diverse I mean, it's very diverse, different values, different cultures. And then we have the European Union, which you just said has, you know, values set, um, written down. How was the prioritisation and how did those values, how did they align with national values? Because I imagine that would be quite important when it comes to things like developing policies,
0: well, not an easy task, but, um, uh, but whenever I talk to uh, to my colleagues from uh, I don't know, big countries like uh, China, um, uh, for instance, or um, even the U.S., and, um, people will tell you that, okay, that's a European thing or whatever. You try to explain to them that Europe is not really a kind of single, like, it's not a single country. There are so many counts, so many ideas, you know, they're really different here and there. And then they tell you, yeah, well, it's exactly the same in our country. And, and uh, China is a single country as far as, uh, you know, you're concerned from, from the, But if you see it from inside, there are huge differences between, I don't know, urban and rural areas, between the the, uh, the east and the west, between the Cantonese and the, the uh, let's say, the, the Mandarin uh, language groups, and so on and so forth. And uh, these are significant um, differences for them, but not for us we see a kind of a single uh, system. Now, of course, saying that Europe is still uh, an amalgamation of, of 27 uh, the countries, let's say the European Union, at least. Um, and that means almost as many languages. And uh, in, in terms of political um, systems, at least two big, let's say the, the East and the West type of, of system that came together uh, in Europe, plus the traditional and historical differences between the different countries between North and South and so on and so forth. So um, uh, for me, it has been a great achievement that we have uh, created and kept more or less that uh, European uh, Union together. And this happened through, first of all, pain, the pain of war, <laughs> let's say, because we discovered that, that um, if you're not uh, together, you're apart. And if you're apart it can be a very painful experience because conflict, can um, only create a painful experience. And uh, through that dialogue that came after the conflicts and uh, this vision of uh, that one has to cooperate as much as possible, then came this big, you know, decisions of opening the borders, for instance, so people can move from one country to to the other, having the single currency, so on and so forth. So that helped a lot, actually, to create this common science and technology policy that we see uh, nowadays. So um, uh, the, the, the biggest um, uh, research uh, budget in Europe, it's actually the European Union um, uh, budget as a single uh, uh, research budget. Of course, by the way, it's still, if you accumulate the research budget of every individual country, it's very small budget. Uh, by the way, it still represents only 5% of the accumulated, let's say 27 countries uh, budget, but still as a single budget is the biggest in, in, in Europe. It's bigger than any single country. Uh, so that means that, that we have a budget that works for the whole of the European Union, for the benefit of the whole European Union. And that came only through a lot and a lot a lot of discussions uh, and negotiations, but also with a very good will, actually, to create a kind of common approach.
1: I know that you've spent quite a lot of, t- lot of time working on something called, called Global TA. So I would like to ask you, what is global TA and why do we need need it today?
0: Maybe to to start with, um, uh, TA, uh, technology assessment, it's a a kind of a specific, let's say, undertaking that it does not happen uh, everywhere with the name of uh, technology assessment, but it actually happens everywhere (laughs) in the terms of of, uh, the the content of what TA uh, does. Um, So assess the consequences of uh, new uh, technologies, let's say, of the the new developments. And uh, through the um, international projects that we did on uh, science and technology, uh, either specific developments like biotechnology, genetically modified uh, foods, which are very contentious uh, uh, developments, uh, actually, or generally, uh, the the science and technology policy and uh, as such, we discovered, well, I would say the obvious, that we're all faced with the same problems. When it comes to very contentious uh, developments, I said, like the GM foods were really faced through a, a very, very similar debates, uh, very similar dilemmas um, uh, for, uh, for policy uh, making and uh, very similar uncertainties around uh, these uh, developments. So uh, what we lacked was a similar approach to assess these uh, developments. So everyone would go more or less ad hoc, as we say, you know, just make it up as it goes, a kind of um, uh, of assessment. Uh, in Europe, we had more of a tradition, of course, of doing that, and we even had the tradition of uh, trying to have a common approach, so like a common European TA. So we do have in, um, in Europe uh, 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 at least uh, two or three major associations that bring together uh, the European uh, TA um, uh, the groups, let's say, uh, that's uh, under a, a single umbrella association. So we we'll have the chance to discuss about the decisions. We we'll have the chance to um, to exchange information, to have common projects, to have common methodologies, so on and so forth. But this lacked in, uh, when it came to the global, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, situation to to the situation to the uh, beyond the European Union uh, frontiers. So by working with our uh, colleagues in China, in India, in Australia, uh, by the way, in Russia and Brazil and so on and so forth, uh, we soon um, the, the decided to uh, try to, to get, uh, let's say, again, uh, everyone under a single umbrella association, but this time at the global level. So we developed what we call the Global TA Network, which is very new, by the way. <laughs> um, we only started it, and unfortunately, only couple of months before the corona crisis so um, uh, that even stopped us from having what we hope to be our first uh, global uh, TA conference in person of course in in 2020 but we're still actually moving on with that idea and uh, we even um, now are in in contact with the UN which is um, uh, the UN system would be an obvious location for this uh, type of uh, global uh, TA network.
1: When I was thinking about global TA, I was thinking about is it is it possible to achieve fair global policies when national interests, needs, and contexts are so different? I'm thinking about, for example, smaller countries versus large economies, for example.
0: So whether it's possible or not, uh, time will show. But whether we should work towards that direction, I would say yes, definitely. (laughs) That's the the answer. So um, if you work towards it, then we will have the possibility. If you don't work towards that, then we'll never have this possibility. So that's the the way I see it. The UN system was built uh, upon that premise. Uh, The the premise that uh, both um, uh, big and small, strong and weak, everyone can work together towards uh, the same goal and the same aim. And uh, as time goes by with all these global problems, what we call in Europe the grand uh, challenges of our life, we see that we really, they all have the same problems and uh, and the solutions are, are really more or less the same. Every it is true, though, that, that uh, when we started that global uh, TA network, the most obvious uh, members that they were active and, and they wanted to be um, uh, really part of it and, and they had also the possibility and the resources to work in this area were, of course, the, the stronger um, countries, the stronger economies, emerging economies of the world. So, Corona has been a, a kind of uh, <laughs> Uh, gave us a, a very fast a plateau of activity for uh, 2020, so we didn't have the chance to um, uh, develop as much as we'd like to. But we still, actually, with the members of the main, uh, the usual suspects. Let's say so. It's the European Union. It's uh, North America. It's China. It's India. It's Australia. We're working now with our South South African um, colleagues. Have talked actually with. Um, uh, some countries like I don't know Vietnam, like uh, Namibia, countries that they are moving, they would like to move a lot towards science technology development, but they, they yet do not have the resources uh, to go as far as they, they would like, and they usually have the the policy structures to allow for um, a really active global um, TA um, activity. That is usually the problem that we have with uh, let's say weak economy, the political structures let's say, are not uh, there, you cannot usually identify what is actually the policy and uh, the structure that would allow someone to do a TA within that uh, network. So there is a lot of inner work to, to be done there, and that's why we're also now working also with the UN system towards a capacity building in the TA.
1: When you say capacity building, what do you mean by that?
0: So we need to, uh, first of all, analyze the policy structures in account the science and technology policy structures, to be uh, exact, and to um, uh, identify, uh, let's say, strengths and weaknesses and identify where uh, TA could happen, what areas that would be of particular interest in the country for uh, for TA and uh, who should do and with what resources, let's say, TA. And then we can also um, bring in some kind of TA training Um, let's say, from basically the experiences of uh, TA, not only that we have in Europe, but in other countries. And actually that they share more, let's say, the development trajectory of uh, some of these uh, countries. Like, for example, um, our colleagues in India or uh, China, and they can share more with uh, some countries about how they um, integrate TA into the development uh, trajectory. And how TA has helped the development trajectory. So that, that is what we're doing. At the moment, we're um, uh, starting a project, actually, with BNCSTD, uh, the, the Committee of Science and Technology for Development. That's in Geneva, under the, uh, how they call it, the plenary in the uh, New York. And their uh, role, actually, is to identify science and technology um, uh, areas that can help uh, developing countries. And Their role is also to do uh, what we would call technology assessment, but they haven't really activated that role so far. So now that we have created the global uh, TA network, they also um, found, let's say, a, a group that can uh, really um, uh, work with them directly for this um, type of, let's say, aims that they had to start with. So now we will start a project quite soon, actually, in uh, in 21. We start a project with um, what we call. TA capacity building in Africa. And uh, we will take uh, three countries as um, basically uh, targets for this capacity building that we going to be like a pilot uh, work for the UN and for us. And we're um, at the moment, uh, I believe it's South Africa, it's uh, definitely um, on board, uh, and almost certainly in Namibia. And we're thinking the third country might be Kenya or. I think there are still discussions um, there which countries can be part of it. So we will try to apply this idea, let's say, in uh, in African countries very soon.
1: How did you choose those countries? Were there certain criteria that you needed?
0: The UN <laughs> committee uh, chose them, and there I believe, okay, there was uh, a lot of parameters that they are not actually maybe the same parameters that we have. Uh, when it comes to the, to the uh, UN system. So one obvious parameter is that the country itself must want to, to, um, uh, to be part of it. it. It might seem obvious, but it's not actually so obvious um, uh, because there are different reasons why a country would like to be part of such a kind of uh, pilot uh, study. But definitely, they need to also provide their own uh, resources for that. Um, not a lot, but definitely resources, and most definitely a will to change, basically, a will to restructure their science and technology policy. South Africa was a kind of, uh, perhaps an obvious candidate, but they had a strong will, from what I know, because South Africa is uh, uh, the local, let's say, uh, science and technology superpower in in Africa. There's a long tradition of uh, science and technology, let's say, uh, work development, and they are quite advanced compared to to many other um, countries, uh, actually, in Africa. But also, we, uh, uh, there are countries that have a particular uh, interest. Also, they have uh, very significant development, certain areas, at least, You know, like uh, uh, Kenya uh, and Namibia. Also, they, they would like to be part of it. I would say they. Um, it's mostly, a, 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 let's say, a self-acclimation, uh, a self kind of um, motivation to be part of this uh, grouping. That is the most significant parameter here.
1: Have you found anything, any surprising similarities among stakeholders at the national and international level that you can leverage to build good policies?
0: What I will, um, our our stakeholders are actually very uh, wide-ranging grouping. So apart from the, the, the policy makers uh, in the science and technology and the scientists themselves that have an interest, which are the main uh, the stakeholders, we have, in our case, the way that we do TA, at least in Europe, uh, the public, uh, the general public as such, but specifically also NGOs uh, that work in these um, areas, and of course, uh, industry. And whether it's a big industry or uh, SMEs are also a part of our stakeholder uh, uh, grouping. So we invite them regularly in the debates that we um, organize. And we have a direct input in, uh, in our um, technology assessment, let's say, process from these uh, groupings. I see a lot of similarities in debates that happen, for instance, uh, between uh, Europe and China in, in biotechnology area. So whether it's genetically modified foods or whether it's a gene technology, whether it's a genetic, um, uh, let's say, editing, let's say, like we have uh, recently, uh, whether it's a uh, gene therapy, biological resources for any bio engines, for example, development for um, energy. Um, I see a lot of similarities in uh, how people, uh, the public, for instance, would see it as a... Interesting, but also fearful, for instance. They have a lot of concerns about uh, these uh, developments, particularly the closer it comes to them, like food, because we inject food, we we take it uh, into our system. And uh, also uh, medicines, of course. And I see there are a lot of uh, similarities of how these discussions are structured. Um, I see also, of course, uh, differences uh, also in how uh, ideas are incorporated, let's say, how the research is incorporated into the policymaking, because we have very different policymaking, of course, structures, as you can imagine. But also I see uh, um, a difference in how, for instance, uh, industry, how the private sector is um, viewing these um, developments and whether and how they take the kind of concerns um, that, that we see from the public, for instance, in their own, let's say, uh, development uh, procedures, you know, there there are quite a few differences, I would say, between Europe and non-European countries.
1: So then when you see the, because I watched one of your talks and you said it's important to focus on the similarities when we want to build global TA, so how do you then use the similarities? So for example, you just mentioned fear that people have with things like GMO, for example. How do you then use that insight to develop s policy?
0: Yes, that is um, uh, something that depends, of course, not only on our will to, uh, to incorporate uh, these, these concerns and how we them, but also on the possibilities that the system gives us uh, to do that, I'd say that in my opinion, um, every system. Uh, people sometimes, you know, criticize the, the more centralized, let's say, systems. Uh, as you can imagine, like the uh, I don't know, China and Russia, who have more centralized, uh, let's say, policy-making uh, structures. And, uh, here in I don't know, in many European uh, countries, not in every European country, are quite decentralized. And we go again, we have a, a quite uh, big spectrum of how decentralized, centralized is maybe from our uh, Nordic countries where they, they have a quite decentralized system to uh, more centralized, more uh, the southern or the, the center of Europe or the Eastern European countries. So we also have different systems here. And uh, some are more willing than others to uh, incorporate this kind of uh, concerns into the policy making. Now, what means incorporating concerns? doesn't mean that... You have to legislate according to people's fears. What means is that you have to take into consideration uh, these fears when you legislate, and you should always leave um, a possibility of, uh, let's say, change within your uh, legislative uh, system. And in order to do that, you need to, the politicians have to be quite uh, close, let's say, to these concerns and be part of the debate. This does not happen always, that the politicians are willing to be part of this uh, debate. Um, there are many reasons for that. Even our politicians, although they they, they try to be uh, as open, as close to the public as possible, uh, they also have really uh, real limitations of how much they can be part of this uh, public uh, debates. And of course, needless to say, there is a lot of... Uh, Let's say lobbying activity goes around them. There is a, a lot of uh, powerful uh, interests, whichever way powerful interests is not only industry, because people say that powerful industry is not only industry. NGOs have powerful interests as well for their own survival. So um, uh, sometimes we even have a problem with NGOs to be part of the debate. We have industry that wants to be part of a, a specific uh, debate that has to do with sustainable development. And the NGO would say, no, they don't want to be part of it because they have their own, uh, let's say, agendas. So the politicians are everywhere there. They have to to, to be aware of everything, and you have to take into consideration um, everything there. So I would say that I see, personally, I say, willingness to uh, uh, not only uh, listen to but incorporate, uh, let's say, these debates into policy decision-making everywhere. But the way of doing that is very different. Can you give an example? I give you a, let's say, let's talk about uh, China and, and Europe, let's say, that I know a little bit uh, better. So in, uh, in uh, Europe, we have a, a long tradition of what we call participatory technology assessment. Participatory technology assessment is an assessment procedure that incorporates as much as possible wide stakeholders So anything from the, the public and the AGOs, any related, let's say, interest group, of course, industry, politicians, policymakers, and so on and so forth. So by bringing together so, such a desperate, let's say, uh, groupings, you obviously have a lot of conflict. And that's not an easy process to follow. Uh, because sometimes uh, these positionings that we have are so far from each other, that it's uh, well, almost impossible to bridge. So it does take a bit of uh, courage to, to start a process like that. now. One would think that in China uh, they wouldn't be open to such a process. Uh, as a matter of fact, China had <laughs> and, uh, not only um, uh, they had their own, uh, let's say, uh, participatory TA processes. For example, in GM foods that I know quite well, this uh, this area, like we had uh, here, and actually the debates were very similar. I took part in a couple of these debates in, in China. So they were very open uh, debates. The consents were um, uh, raised, the fears were raised in the, in the same um, uh, way. And even uh, um, like in Europe, that we, we usually have the science and technology strategy papers developed by the, the ministries that they, they provide strong support for this type of participatory, let's say an open dialogue processes. we have the same in China. The difference and uh, I would say is that is' not sometimes here you will um, see a direct relationship between the policy making um, uh, result and that process so the the this description of why the legislation is as it is will include that process of debate so they would say that we did the debate we did this kind of thing we took uh, we, you know we involved this and that and that they said that the other said that you know this kind of thing and then we reach the the conclusion that we should Legislating this way because of that, or the other way. So the political uh, uh, debates uh, about the, uh, this process is quite open. This does not happen in China. The political debate is still under uh, closed doors, so to say. So the legislation is there. It's a direct uh, legislation that comes through that closed door uh, discussion. But it doesn't mean that it has not been informed as well from uh, from the let's say the participatory uh, approach. So you see, there are differences there. They appear to be very um, uh, strong differences because what we perceive from the outside is that someone, and we don't know even who or a very small group of people decide on something because they decided on that. And we don't know why they decided on that. But actually, the, the process behind that is not so different as um, our, our process. The style is different, <laughs> let's say. Or at least that's the way I see it, because as I told you before, I'd like to look at the similarities and not the differences.
1: Am I able to ask you whether you know why the process will be closed and not shared in the report in the Chinese version? Or
0: Let's say that that um, I, I respect uh, how uh, you know different uh, systems uh, do things differently. We have the same in Europe. We tend to to uh, to look at I don't know, Russia or uh, or China as these closed systems, but as a matter of fact, there are a lot of closed systems in Europe as well.
1: Okay.
0: And a lot of, uh, for example, uh, people in Germany will complain that Germany has a closed system of decision making. I don't think so, but <laughs> it's they're clear. There are many people who complain about that. Yeah, and you can see that by the way nowadays in the corona situation. You know, they really feel like the, the, that the lockdown is uh, a attack. Or their uh, human rights, basically. I don't think it's a of the human rights, but there is a there is a percentage of people, and that's very small at all, that they really see see um, this process as a kind of uh, I don't know what dictatorship into making. You know, it's uh, they have a very a strong feeling um, uh, about that. So it's really a matter of perspective, to be honest.
1: I'm going to ask you something slightly different. How is the geopolitical tension affecting? S&T policy development. For example, in Australia, sometimes we now hear the phrase technology Cold
0: War. A lot, unfortunately. A lot. And, um, you know, the, the, in, the, in the academic uh, world and um, also in the TA world, which is in between, let's say, policy and academia. We uh, we have a little bit our own world, let's say. So um, we uh, we communicate directly and uh, openly, and we do not um, experience conflicts between them, our peers, let's say, around uh, around the world. So as you know, as well you know, normally also academics have their conferences. They 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 do their own projects. They produce uh, their publications, and it normally runs smoothly, apart from some kind of cultural, let's say, you know, misunderstandings or whatever that might happen. Uh, But uh, politics can have a direct effect, actually, in how um, things are happening. For instance, the the Cold War, let's say, between um, uh, China and uh, the U.S that uh, was really accentuating with um, previous administration. We all know very well the Trump administration. The the view of China whatever, it had a really direct effect from what I know in our Chinese colleagues, because actually they stopped getting visa even to go to the United States. It became really difficult to get a visa. Then there was some kind of retaliation, if you like, from (laughs) the the, the Chinese uh, government. So the visas became difficult also on the other side. Then we see more and more the politicization of uh, uh, some technologies. I mean, some technologies are by default, of course, politicized. I mean, they, you can imagine that any kind of, of military sensitive technologies, of course, politicized. And I understand that, and I respect that. You know, so you cannot pretend to be uh, to have any kind of open access. I don't know, uh, uh, open science, uh, open innovation type of approach when it comes to military. Um, uh sensitive technologies, that's fine, that they should remain under the the, the nation states and strictly, um, let's say, controlled by it. But now we have artificial intelligence, for instance, that artificial intelligence is, okay, it's an umbrella type of, of uh, term that includes almost everything, but it has such a powerful uh, implications for, uh, let's say, uh, um, uh, development, trade development and, uh, and economic implications, that it has become quite politicized as well. So nowadays, uh, even uh, the word uh, AI is a kind of nationally sensitive <laughs> word. And one has to treat carefully in the global, international, um, let's say, collaborations uh, around uh, AI, simply because some politicians around the world, they have politicized the uh, uh, AI, which I disagree, by the way, because you cannot just politicize some would say AI, which is a very general term, but it has been done uh, basically. So yes, uh, politics uh, play, unfortunately, uh, direct, um, have a direct implications in, uh, in our work. So we always have to be aware and treat carefully.
1: Are there practical ways to navigate that challenge? Because obviously, technologies with, that can have the biggest impact can also solve the biggest problems. Um, of course. So is it a matter of waiting for, for the election cycle or are there pr- practical ways to navigate issues?
0: We, we can't do that. We cannot just uh, wait and hope. We don't have a lot of time to, to wait. Uh, as, as you know, and I think as we all know, more or less uh, deep inside, we, we, we cannot wait uh, much longer. Things are changing sometimes in a dramatic way, and okay, climate is the most obvious way, but uh, you see now what happens with the pandemic. And you cannot have politics stopping, let's say, a, a, a solution to the pandemic, whether that's a vaccine, whether it's a treatment, or whatever. That's, but unfortunately, even politics didn't play their role there. But what, what I, am, I meant to say that uh, if there is a practical way to, uh, to navigate through that, let's say, maze, is um, for me, it's, uh, it's the most simple way. It's uh, being open um, about it. So being open about uh, what to do, why you do it, and, uh, and uh, you hope that people will understand and they will, uh, uh, let's say, uh, respect that. And I think they do, to be honest as i said you know there is no reason why we should be doing i don't know drone technology uh, military drone technology together why we should we do that no there is no reason. but there is definitely big reason to uh, to do and um, uh, work on let's say uh, vaccine development or life science uh, data exchange for instance we have big reasons to do that all the same with of course sustainable um, the energy resources you know like how can they develop you know in a common Uh, resources i would say i don't know there are gray areas that some people have more difficulty uh, working on uh, but there are definitely areas that that we should be working no matter what no matter if people hate each other (laughs) if uh, politics geopolitics is uh, very strong but but still you know it's a pandemic we have to deal with that commonly that's it
1: would it be too dramatic to say politics is also a grand challenge then
0: Yes, tell that to the UN. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it's a it's a huge huge uh, the, the challenge. Actually, it's a huge challenge in this for these grand social challenges that that we are faced with. Perhaps the biggest is actually politics, or if you like governance,
1: yeah.
0: because it's it's implicit in everything we do. So if you want to have a you have common problems, if you want to have common solutions, you need the common governance, right? And we don't have that. Supposingly, of course, we have the UN, you have the uh, the plenary, you have the member states, but we know very well that the UN system it does not work well for um, a common. And I don't even know, actually, what is the best way to go about it. But as it is uh, at the moment, it's not so helpful. Right. To uh, to deal with our common problems, so governance is the by far the biggest uh, challenge that we're faced with.
1: That leads to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is what which international organisations are leading the charge regarding global S and policies? Which ones are most well equipped um, to do good S policies?
0: I'll say uh, when it comes to 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 uh, the ones that have uh, a tradition and resources and uh, best equipped in terms of um, uh, expert resource in terms of funding in terms of even willingness to work together would be some like oecd for instance the oecd of course is not a global I don't know if you consider it exclusive or not but definitely has a lot of uh, members but uh, obviously the 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 more upper level of of uh, development is in the um, OECD, but they definitely have the means, the experience, and, uh, and uh, the will, actually, to uh, to help a lot in the global um, S&T policy. and policy. Uh, of course, in principle, and uh, traditionally, um, it should be a UN, for example, this social committee, which I still cannot remember the full uh, name, actually, uh, Remit, is, is, is actually to uh, deal with Grand social challenges, and so they have a membership that covers the whole world. So, um, in that sense, it's the UN system. It's the the plenary in New York. It's the Geneva. The, the committee on uh, science and ecology for development. These are the ones that have the appropriate membership that's and the appropriate structures, if you like. In principle, of course, because they're not they're not functioning uh, very well. They don't work as it should work. But it, they're there, you know. They, they, they are. They have the membership. They have their um, uh, plenaries. Uh, they have the representation from every country, and uh, they have even the official remit, the official, uh, let's say, aim to do science and technology uh, policy. So I think it's kind of obvious. We have to stick with the UN system. We just have to help it be more effective. That's all.
1: <laughs> what's missing, in like, your opinion? What's missing? That will make the system work. What's the ideal for
0: you? It's political will, as simple as that. And this is something which cannot be solved. So geopolitics are also um, played, of course. I would say in the in the UN system, as we know, it's um, it's an obvious thing. And that's okay in a way because if you see the the UN as a kind of let's say the big uh, global parliament or something like that, of course the parliament is a place. Where in a, in a let's say in a democratic uh, system you have different parties which they basically, you know, sometimes scream and shout at each other, and so they undermine each other in order to uh, promote their own agenda. So why is, should the UN be different? But um, uh, still, and if we see it as a means, not only to uh, to promote our own uh, let's say national agenda, but also to promote the, the common uh, the resolutions to the common problems as it should be, then I believe there should be a kind of more neutral, let's say, view of, of science and technology within the UN system. So there, the politics should not play a big role. So it should be left to technocrats to, to run it, as, as simple as that. I mean, the WHO, for instance, it was meant to be like that, and it did work like that. But still, politics even came into this, as you know, you know, recently. But I still think that the WHO is a, is a kind of a place where it's a technocratic uh, place that has done good work and could do much better work once they get the resources to do that. Because they still lack a lot of resources.
1: What kind of impact does RITA have on economic growth? Neutral, positive, negative?
0: That's, that's another million, million dollar uh, question. Because it's one thing where what I say, it's another thing what I can prove. The way that TA works is work as a, as a policy advisory. So, a policy advisory is basically a supporting uh, role within the policy making system. It is a significant role that it plays, but it's a significant role as far as the the people who are involved see it as a significance. Um, let's say, and this for us is basically our impact assessment. It's basically our clients, which is basically the policy making community. Uh, basically, whether and they see our, uh, our work as significant in their decision-making, let's say. Now, it is difficult to, uh, to go at the, at the macroeconomic level and uh, try to figure out whether uh, the, the macroeconomics, the, the economy as such, is better off with a, a TA than without a, a TA, let's say, system. I would say, in a way, it's also common sense that you need an assessment in order to make a decision, right? I mean, uh, how can you have a decision without having a proper assessment? So in that way, it's an obvious plus to have an assessment. The question is that what kind of assessment and what kind of TA is the more effective TA? There are big questions there. That we haven't resolved yet, because we have a different methodologies. The some are more open to to dialogue, some are less open to to dialogue, some are more expert oriented, some are more let's say a general public or NGO oriented. Because it depends really on on the technology at hand. It's my strong belief that, and I think one can even see it in a very general sense that. Countries that have, let's say, better um, economies, that they, they are uh, more developed, they also have a, a much more uh, vibrant um, STI sector. So, that's there, It's a, I think it's, a, it's an obvious, let's say, relation. No one doubts this kind of relation between STI and development. And there we have a good, actually, um, impact assessment procedures. Look at the innovation potential of the country and the economic potential of the, of the country. They're more or less a uh, Very high correlation. Let's put it like that. So, if you see TA as as an integral part of the SDI um, national uh, development, then I would say that that uh, ATA is an integral part of the microeconomic uh, potential of the country as well.
1: Do you think there's an optimum balance between introducing incentives to encourage responsible innovation, for example, uh, versus punishments to discourage this? Irresponsible
0: innovation. Yeah. That's also a big, uh, by the way, a big uh, uh, debate within uh, the, the, the responsible innovation, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the discussion groups. Of course, responsible innovation goes without saying that this should be promoted and irresponsible innovation should be punished. But then we have to also define what we mean by that. One obvious way that the irresponsible, I- irresponsibility is defined is by being unethical, let's say so. If you equate irresponsible with unethical, uh, then it's much easier to, uh, uh, to to figure out actually what should be punished even. Not only not promoted, but punished. Like the genome editing, for instance, that uh, happened in, in Sensen. Uh, uh, for instance, and uh, in the beginning, even the people who are involved with this, like this, this gentleman, he was completely shocked that people would, would find it wrong. And uh, the question is why he was shocked. (laughs) Because we didn't have really a a, a proper uh, decision-making to what constitutes unethical in this kind of new developments. But very soon, the the decision was made, even in that. We know what is unethical in many other developments. We know what's unethical in clinical trials. People are punished if they don't follow the ethical route, the responsible, let's call it, uh, route in this type of innovations. So now we know also that it can can be punished if you do genometric in human beings somehow. So it's easier, you know, because he did some unethical, that's what the official um, uh, discussion and decision there, what he did uh, unethical. Now, when it comes to responsible innovation, I would say, yes, of course, we should uh, promote any kind of responsible innovation. We just have to figure out uh, how we see responsible um, innovation for instance, a lot of uh, the work that has been done around serious possible innovation is um, uh, particularly fo- focusing on, on um, uh, participatory aspects of innovation. So, the participation, let's say, of, of I don't know, public, of other interest group in the innovation process. And I would say, okay, that sounds a good idea in, in the principle, but is it really um, implementable? Because there are limits to how much you can open up your innovation process to outsiders.
1: IP. That's there are good
0: yeah, exactly. There are very good reasons why you have to keep the innovation uh, process uh, sometimes hidden or um, uh, secret, and before a certain level, which is almost the implementation level. So you cannot be accused for being. Let's say irresponsible or not responsible, because you didn't up your innovation. Uh, you didn't open up your innovation process. Um, let's say to to outsiders. Sometimes there is good reason why you don't do that.
1: Uh, I would like to ask you about China, because you did say that you spend quite a lot of time in China. Have you found anything that really surprised you, and perhaps would also surprise other listeners?
0: Okay, yes. I could say a lot of things about uh, the, the China and uh, I can almost only say positive things, to be honest. Uh, that is my personal experience in, in China. So for example, one surprising thing that I found, and I still have a hard time to persuade uh, my colleagues who have not worked in uh, China about is the openness that uh, I found. Because we all have uh, this idea that that uh, China is a very closed um, uh, place and of course it's true that that it's much closer the decision making procedure as I said before than what we're used to in the West that goes without saying. but the fact that the the the, the decision making procedure is closed, does it make the society close does it make the process of debate close? does it make the uh, our collaborations, for example uh, closed if you like and I would say no actually. Um, and my experience of, of China has been a, a quite open uh, a debate. Uh, I have seen quite open collaborations who have uh, collaborated in almost everything that's, that that uh, there is to uh, to collaborate in our area at least. I still repeat, you know, if you' doing if you want to work in, in I don't know what uh, I don't know, security systems or whatever, yeah you don't try if you want to collaborate with China security, um, uh, systems then yeah you will not be able to do that but then it's the same in many countries including the US by the way so it's I don't consider that as a as a bad thing personally my personal experience collaborating with, collaborating with China is, is open I won't say without challenges uh, there are challenges there are even cultural challenges that one is faced with for instance the, the way that the debates are taking place we are used to hear that that uh, there are uh, i don't know there is a big uh, group of people and uh, they are not only open but very blatant somehow to um, the their, uh, the way that they approach the debates they can be very accusatory they can be offending even and um, they usually does not well, not always but it, it even is non hierarchical as well so you can have a, a young person coming up and saying that uh, I completely disagree with the, this thing and this is, uh, you know, it's crap, it's uh, bad, whatever. They can be quite uh, strong and offensive in that thing. This you don't see in China. It's a much more uh, polite uh, way of, uh, of addressing the debate. It's hierarchical. A junior person will never uh, overtake the, the senior person in the debate. They would always have the the, the lower uh, level of, of interaction that the senior person would always give. So, I consider that uh, not uh, the, the, the closed political system. I consider it as a kind of a cultural difference there. So, in that sense, it can be kind of uh, challenging actually to have a common uh, debate.
1: So then, would would the say junior person still voice their opinions in that kind of situation or?
0: I, th- I think they will always uh, respect the senior uh, person and they would not uh, create a conflict with the senior uh, person. Definitely not an open conflict. Here you can see it. this can happen, actually. You can say, I disagree with you, especially with our uh, Nordic uh, friends, uh, sometimes we're, we're even shocked about how uh, disagreements some of themselves are so blatant, for instance, but they're used to it, you know. The Dutch people are used to having the, It doesn't mean a lot, you know, they can shout at each other and they can still reach a common uh, decision. So even we as, as Germans, let's say, are shocked sometimes with how blatant and uh, open they can be, because here we also have our kind of implicit hierarchies. Um, but in China, for instance, they're quite strong, these hierarchies. And I, I dare say, like, let's say, in Russia is also uh, like that, less so that in China, but uh, yeah. and also the use of uh, the the words, you know, there could be much more. Um, okay, that could be also a kind of translation issue there, but but um, not as as a direct, you know. It can be, a, you know, a going around basically the, the the subject a lot. Yeah. So okay. you need to to pick actually the the main points uh, sometimes, while here we used to sometimes be, well, here, when I say here, I mean, maybe Germany. Sometimes we complain about our uh, UK colleagues that they are uh, kind of talking a lot around it, but they don't give us really a kind of straightforward uh, answer.
1: Would you mind giving us an example of a project you've worked on with China just to demonstrate, uh, so we uh, help you to visualize what you mean by being open. So you spoke about open dialogue. Were there other aspects that you th- you thought, oh wow, well, this is actually a bit different to what I thought this experience would be
0: like? One of my first experiences, and uh, the, the, one of the most positive experiences, they were that was almost uh, shockingly positive for me was the GM food debate, actually. That's also my uh, the, my background. I took part in that debate, actually analyzed for my PhD in the 90s already. So when we first uh, had the first GM foods uh, arriving in Europe, and there was all this uh, huge, uh, actually, uh, the conflict arising out of that, um, that, you know, ended up in basically the banning of uh, GM foods and even the technology, more or less, in, um, the, in Europe. So that, at the time, was uh, really a... One of the strongest and most conflictuous debates we had with um, the United States, for instance, with our colleagues there, because they're all like completely positive. They couldn't understand what on earth is wrong with the Europeans. They do not accept GM food. What's wrong with GM foods? And the Europeans were completely like, this is the, the you know the, the hell on earth basically. The GM food is going to destroy everything that that we live for and what we believe in, and so on and so forth. So it was very strong debate. So. Later on, and, uh, this debate started in China, and I uh, was uh, shocked of how open these debates uh, were. You would also have uh, people, like uh, prominent uh, people, uh, coming up in the debates and they say, "What is uh, you know this kind of uh, GM foods? They want to um, uh, to destroy us. They will uh, uh, you know uh, kill us. They will uh, make this kind of thing." And uh, what is the government thinking about that? So they should they stop it immediately. And there is no way we can accept it. So you saw this kind of very similar uh, approach to, I don't know what, you know, everyone says, the government, but this thing, there is no way I can accept this thing. Uh, a very emotional uh, kind of um, uh, reaction uh, that, that I have only experienced in Europe, and I assumed it was because it was the European openness that uh, created it. And then I saw it happening in, in China. And in China, actually, we had more or less the similar approach you know in the beginning you know there was a kind of uncertainty about that but there was a kind of positive from a technocratic point of view a kind of positive approach to the gm uh, let's say food. Um, and then there were public reactions that became very obvious actually reactions they reached the media quite uh, fast there were people complaining uh, everywhere and if you like they almost pressurized and they they um, uh, the government into uh, reconsidering actually their technocratic approach. And the result was more or less the same like in Europe. So you have a much more uh, uh, careful, uh, actually, approach to, to the GM food and GM in agriculture in, in general. So I found that uh, quite positive. And I think also from my Chinese uh, colleagues, it was um, a kind of, it was a, one of the things that, that uh, created this kind of the new China, the new openness within the Chinese society, you know, that came along with the openness and trade, for instance, individual movements, individual uh, developments within that trade and how people were free to to start their businesses and to, uh, to do things that they wanted to do. So it was part of the whole kind of process.
1: Do you see that happening? So that was in the 90s something? Do you see that similarity with other projects over time?
0: Uh, Yes and no. Um, I would say that that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, we have reached a point when um, in China there are public debates for every uh, scientific and technological development of a a certain, uh, let's say, sensitivity. So we had similar uh, debates in China and the nanotechnologies, for instance which was an interesting uh, debate because, again, nanotechnology, of course, a very, it's like AI. It's a very general umbrella. In Europe, we started early these uh, nanotech uh, debates because of the problems that we had with the biotech debates in the past. So governments were, were kind of um, quite willing to open up a debate about nanotechnology applications quite early to avoid these kind of conflicts, which are very costly, by the way economically costly this kind of uh, of debates if you develop products that they cost the billions and then the market doesn't take it basically and then you have to even to ban them that can be really costly and um, so with the nanotech debate we started it early as well and kind of I don't know I wouldn't call the the, the I wouldn't say the world imported but it was uh, the kind of also taken up in China. So in China we had an interesting um, situation whereby, in the beginning, before there was a public debate about uh, nanotechnologies, there were uh, commercial products that they were advertised as having a, a nanotechnology or nanoparticles. You know, like I don't know, the creams, you know, like uh, face creams or this kind. You know, it was it was nanotechnology made type of thing, and then the, the debate started. And because you had also, you know, the, the already some ready-made arguments that you could take from Europe about the the positive and negative aspects, they were all taken up similarly in China. And then the, the perception, people's perception of the <laughs> started changing from a positive by default because it sounded good to a debate about the pros and cons, and then started becoming more negative. And actually, uh, from what they told me. Um, They they stopped advertising. It's actually nowadays considered um, negative to advertise a product that contains nanotech material, (laughs) let's say. So it was an interesting uh, development there. And that was also the result of of a public uh, debate. So policy had nothing to do with that. You know, the risk assessment, the official risk assessment uh, and, uh, procedures that create the, the science and technology policy decision making was completely different than the, the public debate. But the results was as we see it. So now nanotech is also um, uh, slowly, like in, in Europe, um, the slow, slowly and very carefully taken up. It's not uh, yes, great uh, nanotech. Um, and let's say, let's put it everywhere we can uh, type of thing.
1: Are the debates held by the support of the government, or do they run separately?
0: Um, both, I would say. Um, one thing is that the government itself, it has incorporated actually actual official, and the official, um, I do to remember now, which which, uh, which number of, of the five-year plan, since 2014, let's say about, yeah? So 2014, 15th, uh, the, the RRI, the Responsible Research and Innovation, um, and the, the public participation, uh, and, uh, let's say, in uh, decision-making and science and technology policy issues is being written as a, as a kind of aim within the, um, the, the five-year plan for, for science and technology. So it shows uh, a, a definitely a will, at least in writing. Let's put it like that. So uh, in writing, there is a will to have a political uh, a policy let's call it like that, a policy initiated uh, debates, open debates about science. So that's one thing. Uh, The other thing is the media debates that happen. And the media debates in in China, they happen everywhere, from the local social media to the official media. And uh, science and technology is an issue that it's almost impossible not to create a public uh, debate, because nowadays it, it has a direct effect. You know, So it's like whatever people say whether it's good or bad I still have to decide whether I will drink this water which is I don't know it, it, it has um, it's chlorinated or whatever you know so I have to decide whether I will drink chlorinated water or not so with the must be an ST debate about the pros and cons of chlorinated water so I can make my decision and this can only be in the public by the use of uh, media let's say so you cannot avoid that nowadays so if you have uh, uh, people that make their own decision whether they're going to drink the water or not then you must have also a debate about chlorinated water as, as simple as that um and in that sense it's good thing for the policy so the, the politicians would like to to create that uh, debate because it's also good for them <laughs> if you know what i mean they need to uh, to make a decision about whether to chlorinate or not to chlorinate because if they make the wrong decision, people will simply not drink it. You cannot make people drink something they don't want to drink anymore. And that would be a problem. That would be a, 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 an economic problem, let's say. That, could, that would be a social problem for the politician to resolve. So I think there is there is a will. How far it goes, I don't know. It's It's in the eyes of the beholder, you know, <laughs> how far this thing goes. Many people outside of China will tell you it doesn't go far enough. But then their standards... Are like the i don't know the dutch standards and i don't think we should we should judge china with the dutch standards if you know them
1: let's talk about your projects i understand you're working on quite a few rri projects at the moment would you like to share with us what are you are working on
0: um, first of all rri was um, Uh, It's easier to to call it almost in the past, by the way, in the past tense, about uh, working in RRI, because specifically, RRI, not responsible innovation, responsible research innovation, this particular uh, term, was uh, created uh, within the European Union, within the European Commission uh, system, and it was uh, financed almost exclusively in Europe by this budget. So, The RRI projects that you uh, hear about are uh, almost exclusively like 90-something percent um, funded by the European uh, Union uh, budget. Uh, I say 90-something because you had also a small national uh, funding in Norway that was specifically on RRI and also in the Netherlands. But apart from these two countries, I know of no other country that had an RRI. It doesn't mean that they don't do work in the area. But just because you you said RRI, just to give you the, the 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 most recent information, let's say, and this thing now is not there anymore. In the new framework program that will start in the new budget, let's say the European Union budget that starts now in 2021, RRI is not anymore a, a, a main funding issue. So you, there will be no more projects that they are called RRI in in industry, RRI whatever, because there will be no call for this project. If at all RRI um, will, or at least some aspects of RRI will be incorporated into bigger uh, projects that are, let's say, uh, medical development projects, um, uh, energy projects, whatever. They will have an, an aspect that will be called um, a responsible, let's say, innovation or social aspect, or as a matter of fact, what now they call open science. So, open science would be a term that will be used and you might see open science projects. So TA is basically what the commission is uh, defined as RRI. So it's a, it's a very, very similar uh, work. We try to, to view RRI through this lens, the TA lens. One big work that uh, we did was the application of RRI, the incorporation of RRI within the organizational uh, context, the research organizational context. So where we uh, we looked at uh, a wide range actually of national uh, research uh, funders and uh, research organizations around the world, including Australia, by the way. And uh, we look at uh, how they view uh, RRI, basically the, the content of RRI, not just the term because they never heard of the term. And they actually, so how they, they view responsibility in their uh, research innovation, the process, how they incorporate this view. Within the organizational structure, and uh, how they would like to see an assessment of, uh, and, uh, let's say, their own incorporation of, of uh, responsibility um, uh, within their organization. We also look at the um, uh, RRI, or let's say, responsibility within the innovation process within the industry, and particularly also we concentrate it on the, um, the industry that is dealing with the aging society. And, uh, so uh, let's say uh, uh, the products which are specifically uh, geared towards the uh, the welfare of uh, the aging population, because also a very particular uh, population, and also big challenge, as you know, in uh, many countries in, in the world, definitely in Europe. We did a lot of work in um, the conceptual work about TA versus uh, RRI versus sustainability uh, research, because this is what is very important uh, nowadays, uh, not only. Of course, globally, but also in Germany. In Germany, the, 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 the sustainability research is almost equivalent in terms of uh, the values it uphelds to the uh, responsible innovation, uh, uh, to RRI, responsible research innovation. Uh, so for us, it's quite important to, um, to also conceptualize well within the country these uh, three, let's say, RRI, TA, and um, uh, SR, sustainability research within the German context. So we have done a lot of work in this area uh, as well. So these are all related to the RRI concept.
1: So I think I'll ask you my last question. What's next for you in terms of a project you would love to work on? Um, And what do you think is the next thing for Global TA?
0: Well, the next thing for me, the global TA is almost uh, identical uh, nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm trying to develop a global TA as much as uh, possible. Actually, and, uh, because well, I explained it before, because we need it, and because it's also the time um, to do it. The the pandemic, from one one hand, stopped us from from developing the network as we wanted to develop. On the other hand, it gave us even uh, more of an impetus and more of a and, um uh, let's say arguments of how uh, of what uh, and uh, and how much uh, more we need to put energy into developing this this network and i think it's clear and uh, nowadays that we have to uh, to develop now uh, also because the pandemic uh, created this kind of need to concentrate a little bit uh, on um, uh, life science uh, data to start with data governance that would be one issue because If you want to create a kind of a common science and technology approach, if you want to create a common resolution, if you want to create, you know, let's say um, a a common science and technology developments and products, then you need to have common data uh, and and you have to work on common data. And common data is not as simple (laughs) as it uh, sounds. I don't know if it sounds simple, but anyway, it's extremely complicated. Because common data means that you have to bring in um, the data sets from um, the different countries into a single roof, and countries are not very happy to uh, to share data. Might say that their data, there is data and data. So um, the, we want to concentrate on that uh, data which is uh, less contentious uh, data, which is not so easy to find, less contentious data. But anyway, so but for us, it's life science data. For example, would be the number one uh, priority. And also the one that we can um, easier argue uh, for. So we have, China actually has a huge, huge uh, uh, amount of life science data. They have the the biggest uh, uh, gene bank in uh, in the world. They want to um, to collect even more data. They want to reach even the 100 million human uh, genetic uh, map within, I don't know what, what is the plan, or the next five years or whatever, and they can do it actually. We also have uh, big data sets, life science data sets in in, uh, the US, but not as big, not even close to that, actually, in the UK and even here in in Germany or in other countries. So these are data sets. Let's say if you want to create, um, uh, to develop a new vaccine, the more data you have, the easier it is, uh, the more accurate and the better, actually, products you will have, the less, uh, let's say, risky products, since everyone is worried about the risks of vaccination. So we need that. We need that to to create new vaccines and fast. Actually, we need that to create new treatments, new medicines, and so on and so forth. The question is that how we can do that? Uh, and a by uh, definitely by upholding the the main uh, uh, values uh, and uh, the main legislation that we even have nowadays. Let's say in Europe, the GDPR, uh, the, the General Data Protection uh, Regulation. That um, uh, it, it means that it has to be uh, either anonymized or definitely uh, to protect the individual's rights to privacy and give the individual the right to actually exclude themselves from it and so on and so forth. So in China now we have very similar, by the way, uh, legislation since uh, last year, as a matter of fact. So in principle, we don't even have a really conflict uh, there in terms of legislation. In the United States, we don't have such kind of legislation. So we we have to, to to be faced with these issues and also to and also with uh, even the, the data governance architecture that would allow us for uh, for a, this kind of development. So we're looking at blockchain, for instance, as a possible architecture for this type of of developments. But anyway, to bring it back to the original uh, question, this is uh, what we'd like to work on. So basically, develop the global TA network, develop our uh, common uh, understanding of. Uh, um, uh, assessment, uh, develop uh, standard uh, methodologies for doing that, st- standard assessment procedures, develop our uh, capacity building activities in counties that they would like to uh, to have that and uh, piloted this global uh, TA approach to uh, life science data, if possible, to the life science area, basically. Well, so-
1: sounds fascinating. Um... And I hope everything goes well for you. Sounds like a really huge project.
0: It is excellent.
1: (laughs) I'd love to thank you for your time. It's been really interesting to hear, in particular, how different countries differ and cultures differ, because I think that has a huge impact on everything that we do, not just in policy, but technology design and just normal communications between countries and individuals. So thank you very much. And I hope to speak to you again soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you.